You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is Danny Anderson, Assistant Professor of English at Mount Aloysius College and host of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Thanks for joining us again. Um, we have a really special episode today. Uh, every once in a while, we like to do a, a show about it, just a film. And we've picked one film again today. And joining me once again is a longtime friend of the show, C. Derek Varn. Derek, how are you doing? Very good. And I weirdly have somehow became a specialist on like weirdo Russian cinema. <laughs> Um, that's why we keep you around um, <laughs> i mean this was not that weird this one's actually pretty classic but yeah 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 no we're so we're going to be talking about uh, uh the tarkovsky film stalker uh if you remember back go back into the archives and derek and i or derek joined me for a talk about andre rublev by tarkovsky and kind of got me hooked a little bit and i wanted to do another film by him actually when i went about a year or so ago i went to see james k a smith uh, speak at uh, in Lancaster, and he opened his talk actually by referencing this film because his whole project is about you know you are what you love, and the major dilemma of this film is do we really want to face what our true desires actually are? And so he used this movie as kind of a uh, a metaphor to kind of open his talk. And so since then I've been wanting to talk about it um, with Derek. And Derek uh, is kind enough to come back on me uh, on the show with me. And I, I kind of feel like. Like this gives you a break from your normal like political rounds. You're, you're kind of this is this is this nice for you to talk about art? Oh yeah, um, I used to do a show a long time ago. Um, some some of the archived episodes are available on YouTube where I would talk about film, and it was refreshing. Um, uh, I actually talked about the one of the Tarkovsky movies that we haven't talked about yet, and I think his most famous one, um, Solaris. Solaris. Yeah. yeah. Although, if you were to talk about the, I used to think Solaris was my favorite, but as I get older, it's either the sacrifice or this. I I find that late Tarkovsky is um, very interesting and somewhat underappreciated. Although this that is not true for Stalker, but it is true for his last two films. Yeah, this movie makes all sorts of uh, greatest films of all time lists, um, along with Andrei Rublev, I have to say, too. And so this is definitely something, if you're a connoisseur of film, I know Filmstruck is uh, gone by the wayside on us, but uh, apparently they're going to replace it with something else. The Criterion Collection is going to move uh, to its own streaming service, apparently. But uh, um, definitely try to um, carve out some time. This is a shorter film than uh, Rublev was. It's only two and two hours and 40 minutes. Um, yeah, it's only two sections, not five. <laughs> Exactly. Right. Um. <laughs> um, and it's really interesting because uh, the pace of this movie is extremely um, slow. I think the, the ratio is almost like one shot per minute. It's like 160 minutes, 180 shots. And there are some shots that are four or five minutes long. It, it's mm-hmm. an extremely um, slow paced um, film. Yeah. The famous train scene is like six minutes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, yeah. And it's, it's really um, hypnotic in that way. And, if you were looking for something to kind of break you out of 
the fast-pacedness of our of our media consumption. This is a great movie to uh, to help you do that. I have to say, I hate to admit this, but I actually found a decent article on Salon.com <laughs> about this very topic, about the, the 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 pace of this being sort of refreshing in the moment of, of social media and and films that are cut with four second shots, and there's something kind of therapeutic almost about just staring at a screen and, and just soaking images in um, that take a long time to develop. And so um, it's a really beautiful film, philosophically really profound and extremely thought provoking. I can't wait to, uh, to dive into it with you a little bit more. I do have to say, I think unless something changes, this is also the sectarian reviews 100th episode. And so uh, <laughs> this is a, uh, um, yeah, yeah. So this is a kind of a big, a big moment here. If it's not 100, it's 101. And so, um, and it's, I'm happy to have Varn on it here with me. So um, let me just kind of real quickly uh, summarize the plot. We will spoil the film uh, as usual. And so this is 1979. You've had plenty of opportunities to see it now. So um, You can find it online for free, a d- different translation than the one Criterion uses. And the Criterion cut is the one you should see. But you, if you don't have the 30 bucks um, or whatever streaming service will exist with Criterion on it. You know, um, I actually bought it on Amazon for 15 bucks. Uh, and so, and, it, and it's a beautiful print. Apparently they just uh, remastered this about a year yeah. or so ago. That's probably why they, they were really articles. cleaned it up. Yeah, actually. And, and it's, it's worth seeing in its remastered state just because it's an extremely um, visual film. The, the framing, the, it, it's like looking at a, a series of paintings. It's really um, a beautiful thing to look at. And so getting as nice a print of it as possible, um, highly recommended, but you know, if you have to just go to YouTube and whatnot, but, um, but yeah, so the, the plot is basically there is this space in Russia where apparently a meteorite it doesn't say it's Russia. Uh, oh, this is a good point. Uh, in uh, a place where they speak Russian, there's a, a meteorite <laughs> and that has had crashed at some point in the past and created this almost like magical space. Um, they're calling it the zone. And in this space, there is a room that if you can get to it and when you enter the zone, the rules of physics just don't seem to apply and spaces change and the zone itself seems to be a sentient being almost. Um, but if you can get to the room, then your deepest wishes or your, your deepest desire will be granted to you. And so there is a, a, a class of people that rise up called the stalker. And they're basically a guide to people who are wanting to enter into the zone. And, um, they have to go through some military barricades in order to break in, which I want to talk about the, the whole, um, the military aspect of this. But, um, and so the, the stalker in this film is escorting a writer and a um, professor, uh, like a, a physicist, and they're just called phys- professor and writer and stalker. That's the names of the characters uh, into the into the zone and uh, leads them to the room. And when they get to the room, there's uh, some drama ensues and, and then a lot of philosophizing goes on. It's a very kind of spare plot, but uh, it, it's a more less a movie than a space to allow you to think, right? I, I think uh, if you want to think of it in that way, I, that's how I sort of appreciated it. And so, um, Derek, what do you think is kind of most, where should we begin talking about this? What's like so important about this film? Well, it is obviously an allegory and yet it's almost impossible to clearly um, have a singular allegorical take on it. And it, I mean, um, even more so than 
did some of the weirder things on Andre Rublev. There are I have I have read and listened to many takes on this film. Um, there's an interesting uh, ancient faith media podcast on it um, where they go and do an Orthodox Christian reading of it, which you know would make sense, right? Tarkovsky was it about Orthodox Christian, but they have to ignore parts of the movie. Um, for their clean, you know, allegory to stick. Mm-hmm. And you'll find that over and over again. Like when people interpret this movie, they'll, they will not deal with certain elements of it. Um, the, the faith that, that, uh, Tarkovsky has in images, um, is something to really pay attention to in this. This, well, we're talking about the long shots. One of the things you really have to notice is like, Perspective and composure of perspective is really important. Use of color is really important. Yeah. The film starts off not in black and white. Sometimes you hear it called that. It's not. It, it starts in sepia mm-hmm. and orange. And the normal world is all in sepia. And the zone is all in really brilliant modern looking color. Yeah. Even I mean, it looks more modern than it should for considering this was a Moscow film in 1979. Yeah. Um, and the only exception to that binary is, is something at the end that we'll talk about that I rarely hear pointed out. Um, also the characters are, are known by their, you know, by, by their professions. They are, um, they're obviously representative, um, characters apparently um there was a a photographer like there was a change in uh, cinematographers in the film and when the cinematographer changed they had to reshoot a lot of the movie and the character of stalker changed from what what he is in the book which is almost a grifter to tarkovsky reimagined him as a holy fool i've talked about holy fools before i talked about it in uh, andre rubelev too and this is a big part of of Eastern Orthodoxy, but particularly Russian Orthodoxy, like it comes up in Dostoevsky and um, all that. And um, so the stalker character is portrayed in a very, a very interesting light. Um, there's a lot of talk about faith in it. There's a, there's a lot of interesting ruminations on on people who seem nihilistic and their inability to deal with faith, but also their inability to completely destroy it, even in themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, there's 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 a whole lot there. Um, and yet, there's only one name character, and that's a child who really doesn't show up until the end of the movie. <laughs> um. And that name's a nickname. Monkey, right? Monkey, is, yeah. Is what he calls her, yeah. Yeah, which is from the book. In the book, the child is is, is more physically deformed. Okay. Um, yeah, there's some sort of mythology that's built into this film that a stalker is almost like a, a chosen like mystic. Uh, and when a person chooses this life, um, their children, if they have children, their children become these kind of mutants or magical beings or something like this. And, and this, right. Kind of- well, they're changed. And the implication is, um, 
they've changed because the stock it's not that the stalker's like mystical it's the stalker goes so, into the zone so much it starts to alter them in some profound way mm. um that that's the same between the book and the movie another thing to note this this is based off of a off of a book roadside picnic by boris and arcady uh strugatsky but it's like almost not remotely the same thing yeah it's yeah basically uh, yeah um there's like three parts of it that are the same uh, the child the stock the idea of the stalker and the idea of the zone and that's pretty much it yeah um the book is is um really uh really really good but it's completely different yeah so yeah if you thought stanley kubrick took liberties with the shining um then <laughs> this movie yeah this is this is nothing <laughs> yeah this movie runs that over um like far and away yeah and, and the the i, I did i definitely want to there, there's some enigmatic moments in this movie that are clearly there for as occasions to think about something and it's almost like the movie's tempting you to look for symbolism and, and interpret meaning while Tarkovsky himself says that's the wrong way to read his movies, to watch his movies is to, he would just want you kind of to experience the images of the movies, right. And to look for meaning is, is consuming them wrongly. And yet there are moments in the movie that it's, impossible to not think about what it means. Um, there's a dog that shows up occasionally in the movie and um, the scene at the end, the end of the film after um, the stalker returns home, there's his daughter is sitting at a table and this is one of the moment where it goes back to color. I do believe if I remember correctly, every scene the daughter's in is in color. Yes. And, um, and she makes glasses move with her head like, uh, like, glasses on a table with like telekinesis and she's got this rather menacing look on her face while she does it. It doesn't look like an angelic being when she's doing this. And so, um, and then there's about four or five minutes of her just watching, um, making glasses move across the table with her mind. Um, I definitely want to, um, to pick your brain about what that what's going on there for sure. Um, but I want to, before we do that, I want to revisit one thing that you said about allegory. As I was watching this film, I couldn't help but think of Kafka. That uh, very much reminds me of the castle in the, uh, the way in which the characters are trying to get to a place through this circuitous route, right? There's this um, ever-changing labyrinth in front of you, and and that's sort of the the mystifying nature of of Kafka. And like Kafka, um, as you said, this this film lends itself to allegorical understandings, and yet every allegorical reading of it will eventually collapse on itself, just like in Kafka. Like you can read Kafka theologically, you can read him um, politically, you can read him in psychologically way in psychological ways. And every sort of reading you have will eventually eat itself. And, and and I felt very much like that here. There are ways in which this feels like a Christian allegory and the stalker is some sort of um, messianic figure almost. And then there uh, are ways in which it doesn't work at all. And, and so, um, it's, uh, it very much reminds me of, of the feeling of a Kafka movie uh, or of, of a Kafka story, um, put into film form. Yeah. So, Hmm. I would agree with you. I mean, except that, that I don't, I mean, it, it's Kafka-esque in some ways in that it's invoking a certain amount of incom- com- um, incomprehensibility. Um, 
but why it's doing it is yes is completely different yes um yeah I, like and let me try and anticipate what you're going to say kafka there is no escape from the enclosed system right and and tarkovsky seeks this transcendence i think and and yeah I, yeah go ahead i mean the, the invocation of the duologues in the berlin wall and how they go into the zone is unmistakable and yet it can't really be an allegory for that um because no one totally wants to escape. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the interesting points of the book. I mean, well, of the book and the movie. I mean, the movie, it's even a bigger deal. That when, given, when faced with the opportunity to both escape or to have their desires brought upon them, almost no one will choose to do it. And um, you'll get to why. But what's interesting, another thing I think is interesting about if you were going to say which part of the film felt more fantastic, if you just want, cause it's broken up into two parts. If you just watched the first two parts, you would say, Oh, well, the zone looks like, just looks like normal. It looks like an Estonian field, which is essentially what it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, and at first until you realize that there's some weird stuff going on with perspective, um, with the camera perspective, um, you don't even realize how strange it is. Except that travel doesn't make sense. Like you, you look at where this house is, where they're going to, which is where the room is, and it's like, oh, that should only be a few, a few feet, and it's like it takes forever. <laughs> and at one point, they're like underground, and then there's like, you know, dead bodies and all this other stuff. Um, and what's you can't take a straight path because it's not safe. And clearly this place has claimed lives. They'll um, sometimes flash to like skeletal hands formed into rocks and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, But you don't really, you don't really see. I mean, one of the, one of the most fascinating things about it is how not dangerous all of it actually seems. Yeah. It's very beautiful. And they often talk about, I would like to live here. There's no people here. It's beautiful and silent. And, and yeah, the flowers are growing. They don't smell yet, but they're growing, right? There's enigmatic things all through the, throughout this movie. Yeah. Um, and yet there is a sense of menace to it as well. Um, and, and honestly, some for a movie in which nothing really happens, um, <laughs> there's some moments of, of high tension, honestly. Uh, and, and so um, he makes something out of this nothingness um, and pretty effectively. Well, I mean, even okay. So I love uh, you have the scene where one when the stalker wakes up. We, we can go through the movie because I think there's some scenes that are not commented upon a lot that I think are important. Okay. Um, you have this uh, frame, not narrative, but this framing of the stalker's family. Mm-hmm. Um, when the stalker wakes up, you have no idea what's going on. He wakes up and he's going to do one of his one of his trips, and his wife like has a conniption basically. Um, you don't know at first it's his wife. You're not quite sure what's going on. Um, and the world that they're showing is so stark and so bare and it's all in sepia and it doesn't seem like it could be a real place. Mm -hmm. Um, he goes off, he meets the, the, the writer who is, you know, hanging out with his high end girlfriend. I think (laughs) it's a little bit vague. And then the professor, who uh, um, wants to stu- supposedly study the zone. Um, 
and they meet in this bar and they'll be back in this bar later. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they go through the, that, that military blockade wh- where people are shooting um, at them, but we don't know why the guards are guarding the zone. We don't know w- what they stick they have in it. It doesn't really seem, it doesn't it, like the zone itself seems de- deadly enough that why would you have to use deadly force to keep people from it? Yeah. Um, and then they, this, my, one of my favorite scenes in this movie is they get on that railway car and you hear the, the dun, 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 dun on yeah. the tracks. And this, this movie, this scene is six, I think I counted six minutes long, but that, that hypnotic, that hypnotic track, you can hear it go synthesize, 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 and synthesize. And it starts sounding more and more like music and it's synthesizing. Like you have this fade in to thing. And then. After about six minutes, and you think, "Oh my God, there's nothing going on." <laughs> it cuts away, and then it's bright color, and you just see this beautiful lush field. Yeah, and that—that's when you really realize that, oh, this isn't this isn't what I think it is. Yeah. Um, the writer's interest. I mean, we can talk about the two characters. The writer is fascinating to me because he's he's uh he he's skeptical of the stalker. Um. And the professor is skeptical of the zone. Yeah. Um, the, the writer doesn't think there's any real danger. Um, and we don't get what the professor is actually up to. And um, they travel along. And there's not a lot of dialogue in this movie. No, there's not. Yeah. There's a lot in the beginning. And there's a lot in the second in the second section um, when they ph- philosophize right when they enter the room. And then there's also a lot in this end when you realize, Oh, this trip wasn't just about this trip. Right. <laughs> um, and, and I would say, honestly, I don't know that I call it all dialogue. It's a lot of monologues um, pieced mm-hmm. together. Right. Uh, and so there's not a lot of conversation. It's people offering each other opportunities to philosophize. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so the writer, you know, expresses his fear of losing inspiration. He gets angry and stressed. He rants all the time. He doesn't really follow instructions. Um, he, but you can see as they go through, he gets more and more anxious. Mm-hmm. The professor doesn't seem anxious, but he he's carrying something along, and you find out later on it's a twenty kiloton bomb. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I I guess we could get into the. This movie deals in in archetypes, if not allegories, right? And so mm-hmm. there's clearly some allegorical thing going on with between art and science. Um, when you have the writer and the scientist, the professor are the two representatives that the stalker is bringing, um, to this kind of holy place. He approaches this as if he's approaching like the throne of God. Right. And and they both lack faith and or hope. I mean, exactly. Exactly. Like neither art nor science are given a, given a good, you know, portrayal. And honestly, you wonder about faith too, because while the stalker's presented as a holy fool, when we get to the when we get to the, the first climax, and this movie kind of has three, yeah, um, which I normally find annoying. You know, when when Spielberg or um, or uh, Peter Jackson do it, I'm like, oh god. <laughs> but in this movie, it actually each each seeming ending changes your 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 view of the prior ending mm-hmm. it's not like you ended three times and like they were false endings or even twist it's like no there's another piece of this picture 
that when you have more, the prior thing becomes richer. But um, so anyway, to get to that, um, the writer just doesn't seem to to get it. And then the stalker, the stalker talks about his uh, his mentor a lot, called Porcupine or in Russian it means either Porcupine or Hedgehog, which. Mm. Uh, head like hedgehog is a little bit more obvious what it's going on and you get this eventually over the course of the second particularly second section you get the backstory wait 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 where, what's what's more obvious about hedgehog you have to educate me on this one the hedgehog and the fox oh okay 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 i thought there was something in like russian like politics or something that i was no, 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 okay. no no well actually actually if you read that book that's about russian politics but okay okay but it's a, it's a, the the hedgehog metaphor and um, the hedgehog is was a person who taught Stalker how to get into the zone and how to get off the traps and to never go straight and all that. And you discover that um, the porcupine Stalker um, brought his brother to the zone and his brother died trying to get to the room. And then um, when when when. When uh, Porcupine went into the room, he got a large sum of money and then in shame committed suicide. Okay. And this is where James Smith picked up on it. Um, well, I don't know that he said this in his talk, but this is what he was talking about was mm-hmm. he went in there thinking that his desire was to have his brother brought back. Right. Mm-hmm. And what the room gave him, what the zone gave him was wit riches. And then he realizes and, and this is all told sort of uh, as a fairy tale almost. We never meet this character. But um, after he realizes that he didn't want what he thought he wanted and what he really wanted was vain and shallow, he commits suicide after a week, right? Um, but and- Yeah, but it's interesting who figures that out. It wasn't the stalker who figures that out. Do you remember which character does? Uh, was that the... I was think it was the writer. Um, yes, the writer, and yeah. the writer does a lot of weird stuff as you get closer and closer to the room. But like, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The room itself has this. I mean, it seems to be almost like a being. It, it has a divinity to it, right? And it's almost like it's trying to um, test you. And you, if you don't, I mean, it, it puts you through a number of trials almost. And um, lots of people apparently die on the way into the room. And if you can make it, then it grants you this sort of wish, right? And so, yeah. and so it, it seems that it does, it does have a lot of mental and psychological effects on the writer who waxes poetic in really beautiful ways. I actually want to talk about his one monologue when he's sitting at the pipe, but, um, but uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So you have, you have all that happening. And then what's interesting is the stalker won't enter the room either. Yeah. It's sort of like it's forbidden for stalkers to enter the room or something like that. Um, but I don't think that's it. I think um, it's, I think I think you're reading mythology that's not actually there. I think the stalker also, despite his holy fool nature and his faithfulness, can't risk it either. Like there's something too much. He knows seeing his true self would be destructive, and you get this. This becomes even clearer to you on the what I like to call the coda when they're back in. They go back. Uh, they walk back in to, with the family. You get this brief shot of color for a second. You don't know why. And, and you figure it out later. Um, and we'll, we'll get to that stuff at the end. Well, the, the several things at the end there, but, um, 
he he is his wife talks about it and he's like crying on the floor having a breakdown talking about how these two men lack faith and um then his wife goes you know he's like he says well there'll be no one for me to take to the room and and then his wife goes well you could take me and he's like oh, oh no 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 i can't do that and then he goes to sleep and then you get this um monologue from his wife about why she married him and her love for him even though things weren't always great and you know and then you get the last coda of the movie but um that's interesting to to think about um another interesting thing that comes up in that that ending is the black dog the black dog shows up all the time the first time you see him i believe is in front of a corpse yeah yeah he he seems Uh, like a, a menacing figure right right but when he comes back with them which I mean, he kind of he he that dog the dog proves that they actually went somewhere. Otherwise, the wife could have thought they were just in the bar the whole time. <laughs> um, um, but that but that dog proves that they went somewhere. But the dog is not that menacing in those final scenes. I mean, he's a black dog. Yeah, but he he's not acting menacingly. He's acting like a pet, and they ask him to um to uh. To treat it well, not to shoot it off, and says, and the stalker says he can't. He felt unable to leave the dog behind. Yeah, and they're feeding the dog milk at the end. Yeah, it's and they feed the dog pet. milk and yeah, and incorporate it into the family. Yeah, which is fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah. but it indicates that the stalker is not able to to view the room either. You know, um, like I said, um there seems something about that that uh, is too much for for him. And we can get back to the professor and the bomb. But um, then that last bit, when I realized I've watched this movie three times, I was like, why are there flashes of color when the daughter shows up? And then you have the, the stuff at the end when she's playing with the glasses. The daughter is of the zone. Okay. The da- the daughter is like the, the reason why this the children are strange is there's something about their character that has made them of the zone, which is why when you see the daughter, the color is the same as the colors in the zone and not what it is for everyone else. Yeah. And then at the very end, you see that in, it, it's it's not so much menacing as totally inscrutable. Her face. She she she's just playing. She's just sitting at the table. Seems to be staring off in the space, and then she starts playing. At first, she's playing with the glasses, like you know, with her hands, and then she just starts staring at them, and then she basically like just moves them around on the table for about four minutes, and then it she knocks one off, and then the screen cuts to black. Mm-hmm. And 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 the Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Um, the Ode to Joy yeah. is playing faintly in the background at that moment, um, mm-hmm. which does undercut the menace, right? That's a very uplifting and, you know, uh, spiritual moment in, in music, right? And so to juxtapose this otherwise creepy scene with the Ode to Joy is, I guess, kind of like Clockwork Orange. <laughs> but, uh, but um, go ahead. Yeah, but again, almost for the, uh, for the complete opposite reason. Yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah. But there's something about the nature of of self love and desire that that this child as a child of the zone in a way represents that is both joyous 
and also utterly menacing. Joyous and also like when she's around, things are in color. Mm-hmm. But she's inscrutable. Mm-hmm. She's not understandable. Mm-hmm. She has she doesn't talk. She's unable to walk. Um, the stalker has to hold her up. Mm-hmm. Um, you realize that that's her malady. That's her malady, and the other malady is or malady is uh she's got psychokinesis. Right. Um. And but she's in color. So something, something about the stalker's visit to the zone and to this area of faith or hope or whatever or love that the room represents, um, he can't manifest, but he can engender something that does mm. or someone that does. Okay, and that's that's interesting to think about, and and it's something that I I pick, I didn't really notice this in my third my third or fourth watching of the movie. And I have not heard anyone really talk about that part of the exegesis, but the fact is the last scene you get and you get this, this, uh, you know, the, the wife's somewhat desperate actually monologue directly to the camera. Yeah. As if she's talking to someone, but the person she's talking to is you. Right. Um, about her love for him and she, she knew that it wouldn't be great and she knew it was going to be hard and she knew that the child was going to be strange, but it wasn't bad and she doesn't regret it, even though she looks like she regrets it. She really doesn't. Yeah. And then that last scene is the inscrutable child psychic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she says something about, you know, she's happy that there's such pain because there's that's the only way to feel happiness is to experience pain. Uh, Mm. And and so, yeah, there's a a pretty philosophical take she brings to the situation. And that breaking of the fourth wall is I think really important because I do think that this movie, the the philosophical monologues that these characters recite for us, I think are meant to engender philosophical monologues inside of our own heads. And so her talking to us is almost like passing the baton. And then the movie ends with this puzzle, this, this puzzle of a girl with telekinesis where there's no precedent for this in the movie so far. And uh, as something just to walk away from and, and think about. And and I think that that's one of its most kind of powerful achievements. I I want to like move to the moment in. So I want to talk about the form of the movie Eventually, like sound is really interesting in this movie. I, I, I watched it with headphones on and, and I highly recommend doing that if, if it's possible for you. And but I want to hold off on that for a little bit, because once they get once I want to talk about the kind of climax scene when the the professor is threatening to blow up the zone. OK, so his reasoning seems to be that. In the wrong hands, if someone has the wrong desires, it could basically ruin the world, okay? And so it's too dangerous of a power to allow to exist. He's going to blow it up for this reason, which also to me explains the military um, guarding it. Um, They don't want someone in there who's going to insert, you know, establish a utopia or something, whatever that's going to uh, upend the world order or destroy the world, you know, who knows? And so to me, there, there is like a fear, there's a public fear of private desires. And I think that's really Mm -hmm. uh, an interesting aspect of this movie, but at the moment, so there's a fight and they start philosophizing over this. And for whatever reason, the scientist or the professor just 
disassembles the bomb and throws it away in pieces all throughout into the into the room itself so no one can even get to it without entering the room and and uh and they just sit there and stare at the room and so to me yeah the, and then almost falls into it yeah and yeah someone almost falls into it and the stalker catches him and stops him from falling yeah and and that that's i mean we're not even getting to the weird phone call <laughs> well, yeah yeah there's so so many weird things in this movie you're right i forgot about the phone call phone calls um, yeah (laughs) their phone call and what is it the phone call and the writer just goes this is not the clinic like you won't get healed here (laughs) and then hangs up and they it's actually legitimate it's one of the few times in this movie the movie's legitimately funny yeah they all look down like wait what someone just called like this doesn't connect to anything this phone is not connected and we're in the zone and there's and the light came on yeah yeah and there's nothing is this the zone communicating with us kind of? And you realize it is. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and you do hear little moments where the, the zone puts, uh, you know, voices in people's heads, right. As they're, as they're approaching or the room does inside mm-hmm. the zone. But um, I just want to like dwell on the fact that no one is willing to enter the room because of their fear. They're afraid of their desires. Right. And yeah, so, and, and the porcupine story is it. I mean, so the writer's desire is you know what he realizes is that he's afraid not that he's uninspired, but he's afraid that his desire is actually to be uninspired. Mm-hmm. Mm, interesting. Um, that comes out. Um, he's afraid that that no, he maybe he doesn't really want to work anymore, and that's really what he doesn't want to know. And I, I'm not. You don't. You don't actually quite get. Uh, why the professor um, gives up on destroying the room, but maybe it, maybe he doesn't want the world to be as reasonable as as uh, he thinks he does. Well, so, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt. But that's not clear. Like he's the professor does an act that indicates a change in motivation, but he actually doesn't clearly spell out why he doesn't go in. So I was thinking about this, and so they're unable to accept the room and they're unable to destroy the room. It's like they're unable to make any decision at all about it. And they right. just go back to the bleakness of that bar um, at the end of the movie. Those two do. And, um, and so, well, I mean, they all kind of, all three do actually. We, but yes. We see the, the stalker go home with his family and he's just as miserable there, I suppose in, in, the, in his sepia world. Right. Um, and so they're unable to do anything um, when faced with the holy kind of, okay. And I'm, I'm applying a religious reading of this and so what it reminds me of honestly and maybe i'm misreading o'connor here and i know you're a relative of flannery o'connor right distantly didn't you tell me that one time distantly yeah Um, and so uh there's a uh in the misfits real famous speech about in uh in uh, a good man is hard to find he talks about uh jesus was the only one that raised people from the dead and he shouldn't have done it okay and his Mm -hmm. reasons are is that either if he's because if it's true, if it's true, then the only thing you can really do is give up everything in your life and follow Jesus because that's all that matters, right? And if it's not true, then nothing at all matters, right? At all, right? There's then just pure nihilism if that thing isn't true. And so Jesus's emergence into the world presents people with this stark choice: either 
bleak nihilism or utter devotion, right? And that's what's so like horrifying about you know Christian faith in, in O'Connor's uh, vision. That's sort of the way I understand that scene, um, or mm-hmm. one of the ways. And so, and I kind of feel a similar thing is going on here. And they're unwilling to make either choice, <laughs> right? They're unable, unwilling to have faith, but they're unwilling also to have nihilistic to nihilistically destroy the faith. They just want to walk away and pretend it never happened. Yeah, um, even though they all kind of want to be nihilists, they can't be. Yeah. And, and it's like I talked about this with Rublev. It's amazing that such a <laughs> devoutly religious film gets made in the Soviet Union. Now, 1979, we're not talking Stalin anymore, right? But um, yeah, but uh, although it's interesting that his later films are made in Sweden when when um, so like when um, um, during the the Gorbachev area when th- when travel restrictions are removed and stuff. Um, uh, Tur- Turkovsky makes the, his other movies outside of Russia and not with Moss film. So, so that's interesting too. Mm-hmm. Um, this, I think, is maybe his last Moss film movie. I'm not I, 100% I sure, right. that, read, but I think it is. Yeah, I read that, yeah. And I read somewhere, it might have been on the Amazon like trivia thing that pops up while you're watching the movie, um, that someone claimed who worked on the film that both he and his wife and someone else died of cancer, um, that they picked up while oh filming. no they were they were near so, some of the places they filmed some of it was in estonia but some of it was in chernobyl yeah yeah um, and, they, and they sort of picked it up in the filming of this movie uh the the chemical whatever yeah yeah that's uh, that, that there's chemical exposure and that, yes Tarkovsky did die young of cancer mm. i mean it's not 100 percent sure that this is what exposed him to what gave it to him but there's been much speculation of that and and this movie did almost break him I and mean, he he had to shoot it twice yeah um, yeah, and it's significantly different. Uh, I guess the first prints are lost. I mean, they, they were messed up or something in the lab. And, and he said, and, well, you, a woman doesn't give birth to the same baby twice. And so he basically changed yeah. a lot. And so, yeah. Yeah, apparently the stalker character is more of a grifter and less of a holy fool in the original one. Although some people who saw the original one say that that's not true. Mm. But no one can verify it now. Yeah. Um, um, he is more of a grifter in the in the book. So... Yeah. Um, well, in his lament, I mean, in the film that we have, he's a holy fool, right? And so, and his lament at the end is one of, there's no hope for the world. No one has any faith, right? And that's, right. that's what he so he falls asleep in yeah. his depression. Yeah. But it's interesting what I, what, what, what said, his wife says, well, you could take me. And he goes, no, 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 no. What if you fail? Right. Which yeah, means he doesn't have fail? faith either. <laughs> he doesn't have faith and he doesn't have faith in her. And that's when you get. Are himself, and that's when you get um, um, the the speech. So even though he is kind of a holy fool, he's not, um, you know, actually, he doesn't have enough faith himself. Yeah, and th- that's part of why this is like he is he is almost broken when he comes back. He's not just whining. I mean, he's really he looks ill. Yeah, yeah. He looks like it's taken a toll out of him. Yeah, he's emaciated. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, um, and he is. I mean, just we're not reading this into it. He's called God's fool twice, and I think at yeah. least twice in this movie. The writer and his wife, I think, both refer to him as God's fool, and so that's like literally said about him in this movie. Yeah. Now, interesting thing about the, the and this is what's fascinating about this. And when, even though Tarkovsky loved the source material, he really loved the 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 book. Um, Boris is. Uh, is an outspoken atheist. Mm. Um, 
and um, Boris um, Suzowski. Uh, less is known about Arcady's religious religiosity, and they, they were, the two brothers wrote it together. But um, so, like with Solaris, which is also by Stanislav Slim, who's kind of a mystic atheist, but he's very much an atheist. Um, and kind of like the the point of Andrei Rublev and Andrei Rublev's portrayal of the Mongols and the Tartars. Um, yeah. It's interesting that Tarkovsky keeps on choosing to use atheistic source material mm-hmm. for this, even though he's making like obviously religious films. Like, yeah. there's no way. Um, well, the writer at one point. This. Like, uh, so he accuses the stalker of sort of setting him up to take this dangerous path through a tunnel. There's some sort of drawing lots thing. And so uh, he thinks that the stalker fixed it so he would have to go first. Right. And and he accuses him of such. So you get already this if if the if you read the stalker at that point as a kind of jesus figure leading people to salvation then you've got a real weird calvinist thing like i've chosen who's (laughs) who's gonna do what right but it doesn't actually that that reading again eats itself it doesn't hold up because when he's accusing him of this um he later on says i know what you're trying to do you're trying to make up for it and he puts on the writer puts on a crown of thorns It says, I don't forgive you, right? And so there's no way you're not seeing religious uh, work being done here, right? It's almost, That's almost a comical version of it. I actually made it, yeah. that image of my desktop on my computer tonight. <laughs> but go ahead. Right. I mean, well, it's so different from Andre Rublev in this. I mean, like, um, have you seen Solaris? I have not yet, no. It's more similar to Solaris, but it's very different from Andre Rublev in that um, – there are sacrilegious elements being played with here, um, but they all invert themselves. And also, a lot of it, one of the interesting things about the two obviously depressed, fallen people who go back to where they start, who the you know the stalker's complaining about, there does seem to, they have seem to have changed the stalker in a way that has moved something, although it is not clear what forward. Hmm. That's I mean, interesting. that's what those last two codas are about. I don't think people focus on those last two codas enough. I think they end they end in the in the the room scene and think that's really the point of the movie. And in some ways, it is. But I, I'm not sure because the focus on the child, the the monologue with the wife, the um, the way that the stalker seems more broken as soon as he gets home and they start feeding the 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 dog milk and then he lays down on the floor by the dog at first mm-hmm. um you just think like wow he didn't seem that that drained and you know apoplectic just a few minutes ago when they were in the bar also you don't know how they got back yeah um, you never see the trip they're just sitting in the bar i thought it was a dream sequence the bar. or something yeah yeah and and also i know that um tarkovsky said that um that this has an Aristotelian unity to it. Hmm. That everything happened in 24 hours. Hmm. So I I actually, that makes some sense though. Yeah. Um, so, but it's hard to gauge time in the movie. One, because it's because the shots are so slow, and two, because in the zone, time doesn't seem to work the same way. Yeah, there'll be moments in that little house uh, where the room is contained, where they're standing next to a window, and it's the window it gets dark and then it gets light. It's almost like, I felt like, is that meaning the day is like speeded up for them? And like, 
years are passing while they're in this house or something. There but but it clearly wasn't because no. the wife the wife doesn't act like they were gone for very long at all. Exactly right. Um, I actually read one thing that people have uh, compared this to Wizard of Oz, as mm-hmm. because you have a similar kind of black and white to color thing, and and there's a a fantasy element of what's going on in the zone. But in the Wizard of Oz, you don't end up with the zone emerging in our reality, right? Uh, and, mm. and so, like, Oz doesn't show up in Kansas, right? Um, you, but in this movie, with the, that dog and with the little girl, it does seem as if elements of the, the stalker has brought the zone into the world, right? Instead of taking the world into the zone, at the end of the movie, he has seemed to have brought the zone into the world, which is a kind of a hopeful way to see the ending. Perhaps. Yeah, I mean, we keep on making uh, comparisons to Roman Catholic thinkers, um, interestingly enough, um, when we talk about this. But I think we need to remember that the Orthodox God is all-loving, um, but not logical. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, the things the Orthodox Church has against the Catholic Church was the the Catholics uh, – not that, or, not that uh, Orthodox – um, religiosity and Byzantine religiosity is not philosophical. In fact, it's pretty neoplatonist. Um, but that that they try that um, they critique the Catholics for trying to limit God to reason. Mm-hmm. And I, I I I don't know for sure, but I I feel like um, that's part of what's going on here. And that's an interesting contrast to the book. In the book, this is this is this is a remains of an alien visitation. <laughs> that's like a rumor they they throw out. They don't really know where yeah. it came from. Yeah, yeah. And in, in the in the in the movie, it's it's like made reference to, but it's never the definitive answer at all. No, and you're kind of led to believe that's wrong. Yeah, it, it does feel much more mystical than I mean, an alien creation is still materialist right this seems Mm -hmm. utterly transcendent and 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 so yeah i totally would agree with that um although similarly to so again i'm gonna make a comparison to solaris and solaris stanislav Lim, the planet is sentient and is utterly inhuman and is trying to learn to be human by manifesting people's memories and becoming them and all this other stuff that comes up in solaris uh, and, and Tartoski Solaris makes that a metaphor for the unknown, from the unknowability for the past in God. Although he says, "Don't treat it metaphorically," because Tarkovsky always says that. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, "Like treat it icon, uh, like iconically, like like an icon." Yeah. Um, but uh, but again, is it, it's another one of those things where you have a a completely alien sentience from a science fiction that is from a science fiction from a science fiction universe is atheistic. And Tarkovsky uses that as a way to talk about the alienness of God. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, not that God's not loving, because it, while the room is menacing, it's not. It, it is delivering on its promise. Sure. The promise itself is just scary because you don't really want to know yourself that well. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's and that's that was Smith's point, right? And and so he used that as an occasion to talk about the importance of kind of monitoring our desires and, and shaping them through our liturgical practices. Right. Um, and there's a bit of liturgical practice in the approach to the room or to the, to the room inside the zone. Um, he has these giant like nuts or washers that he ties up in rags mm-hmm. and they throw them to see what happens. And then they walk trepidly over to where they threw the thing. And then they'll right, look as around. if everything's a trap. And he says, you can't ever walk to it straight. And so you have to, but yeah. you don't, 
even though you know, you know for sure people have died. Yeah, you see the bodies. You see the bodies. Yeah. You have no idea why, because the room doesn't seem that dangerous. <laughs> like no, like, it's it, it's just it's a ruined building, right? It it, yeah. it looks like a the whole place looks like a bombed well, I, out the, area. The, but yeah. the room, interestingly, if you really notice the perspective when you're seeing them arguments, you know what you're seeing it from. Mm-hmm. From the you're room, you're seeing it from you're seeing it from the inside of the room. Yeah, yeah. You, the camera eye is the inside of the room, so you don't see the room, but the room is looking out, and you are seeing it as the room. Yeah. And, yeah. The, and so in those moments, you become the room, which is... That's trippy. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's stuff with... the Cinematography in this is super important. Yeah, let's um, use that as a chance to talk about the form of the movie. The, the visual... It, Obviously, this is a, one of the great visual movies I've ever seen. Um, truck shots that are just, they go on forever. There's um, amazing framing. Um, like I noticed this in Rublev as well. He'll frame people very distantly and then someone will jump in front, right? And you'll have this like punctuating close up in a scene that's been all long shot. And so these like real intentional um, framing devices that just emphasize the, uh, the, the space that the landscape that he's, he's shooting and really um, use the human form as a great, piece of the landscape and um and in addition to all that they'll be like facing in opposite directions they're all talking to each other by looking past each other i noticed that in rublev as well too and so like the people themselves do become like icons more than characters in a lot of ways visually Mm -hmm. um and so like visually it's just an amazing looking movie and you can't help but think that there's meaning behind the landscapes that he's he's constructing particularly that sand dune inside the building where there's these lumpy <laughs> lumpy sand dune that they're walking through yeah uh, although there's animals in there too which is interesting but yeah it's like there's birds but the, that that's when you realize i think that's when the time when you realize because before the zone is just like a forest and it's acting a little weird because of perspective mm-hmm. but what i mean like and you can't tell distances and stuff but once you get into the the sand dune room you're like oh <laughs> <laughs> This is not, this really isn't, you know, normal place. But if his intent, though, is for us to approach this film as an icon, I mean, there's a real reason then that he takes such care with composing these shots, right? Oh, yeah. um, And so that... That's a way in which the form actually works with the the content, the function of the movie, uh, really, really hand in hand. I also really was struck by the sound. There's a lot of very strange sound effects. I, I caught mm-hmm. it first when they're, I think we're moving in on the uh, the cart, there on the the railway car. There's a um, this almost like taut wire snapping. Uh, if you ever heard that, wah, 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 yes. wah, that, that sort of noise. That's that, what I was talking about when it sounds that, that uh, repeat, that's just a train. You start hearing a, uh, like a, um, a synthesized reverb. Yeah. And then it becomes musical, but to the beat of the train yeah. wheel clunk, it's, it's so subtle. And then like, well, and then I noticed when they finally stop the train, I, what I was he- picturing with that sound was like i said like barbed wire taut wire i don't know if you've ever seen a, a, a fence break or something yeah. you hear the wire go wah, 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 wah. um and then there's a, a bunch of telephone poles there one of which looks amazingly like a cross um that's kind of mm-hmm. halfway fallen over and the camera rests on that for a little bit and so i i 
I could just imagine that sound was the wires that had been attached to this telephone pole. And now that's what's left. And now I'm looking at what is basically a ruined cross and and, an empty ruined cross. And I think that that um, really kind of initiated the religious reading of this for me um, in that moment when they first arrived in the zone, which is like 30 minutes into the movie. It takes forever for anything to happen in this movie. But then, um, uh, and then when the, the writer is, walking through this tunnel. It's like the most tense other than maybe the bomb scene. The most intense part of the movie is there's this really dangerous tunnel, apparently dangerous tunnel. It's called the meat grinder. Yeah. They call it the meat grinder that he has to walk through. And it sounds like they have the microphone taped to his shoes. I mean, the sound is right on the floor. And so you hear unnaturally loud, the crunching his feet make, and you get, then that reverberating metal sound is again uh, during that scene. And and what do you make of what he's trying to do with the sound in this movie? Cause it is really highly produced. You know, I think it's, it, it is, it's a way of bringing you into how strange the world is. Um, because, because the sound indicates something to you, but you're never, you're actually never even sure if it's diet, if it's diegetic or not, like, it's like true enough. Are the people involved hearing it? (laughs) You don't know. Um, I mean, yes, like the theme music, they don't, but, but the stuff like those weird sounds or when, when like the, uh, when we were talking about that, that wire sound. And then when the, um, when the, when things that are obviously diegetic become almost musical, like, Mm -hmm. and it fades into it and you're just like, wait, do they hear this or not? Like, is this, is this their world or is just this artistic world? And and like very few movies play with that. Well, this plays with it very well. Mm -hmm. So you're not quite sure what's in the reality of them or not. Also, you're not sure, for example, that they, that like, you know, you're seeing color. Did they only see in sepia when they're in the regular world? You don't know. Right. It seems um, entirely possible that they only see in sepia, right? I mean, that such is the construction of that diegetic space. You're totally except right. for when the again, except for when the child's in the room, which, which, uh, and again, I've read very little commenting on why that is, but. Mm-hmm. I wonder, um, yeah, I wonder if it's just that people don't know what to make of this movie and, 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 and it does resist any kind of real firm reading. I don't think there is a skeleton key reading to this movie. I think it is there to open up questions and, and, and I think there's a lot of built in contradictions in that way. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm a person who likes oddly paced movies. I'm on record as saying is one of my favorite movies is Barry Lydon by, um, mm-hmm. by uh, Kubrick and people are like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it's the weirdest Kubrick movie you'll like. Um, and, and, you know, Kubrick's also good at long cuts that are well composed and, but this is different from that. Like, yeah. Um, if you're looking for an American, um, corollary, I mean, that's Kubrick's the clo- close. That's the closest but, you're going to find probably. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, this, this is well, definitely Kubrick. Unique. Like if Kubrick and, and David Lynch had a religious baby, <laughs> but, uh, but, um, <laughs> um, but it's but it isn't that either. Like there really isn't a not even American or British art house films are really comparable to this. Bergman's a little closer. Mm-hmm. Um, Tarkovsky loved Bergman, even though again Bergman was a you know pretty I believe a pretty diehard atheist. Yeah. Um, but um, it's not. It's it's not really. 
I mean, can you think of anything like this and from a, from an English speaking filmmaker? <laughs> like, n- n- not in mainstream cinema. I'm sure there's been art films that play to houses of twenty people or something that that might look yeah, something you, like this. But yeah, you you can't imagine this. You know, a movie like this selling what. In the Soviet Union alone, let's put it this way, this movie sold 4.6 million tickets. I read that. In 79. So what's the, which appeal? Is like, what's the appeal to a Soviet um, film goer then? Because that that's hugely popular, right? Um, well, I mean, it's religiosity in the Soviet Union is uh, hard for me to gauge. I was talking to Sean Guillory of Sean's Russia blog and Sean Russia blog podcast, and we were talking about how people maybe overread the religiosity of Russia right now mm-hmm. um, because of the power of the Orthodox Church. But he was even saying, but the Orthodox Church isn't as powerful as you think it is. Um, and um, But we were like, we, it's hard to know how much latent religiosity was in the USSR. But it is interesting that, for example, Prague or even Latvia – um, a lot of the post-Soviet um, Eastern European bloc countries and Central European bloc countries are still pretty atheistic. Mm-hmm. That's not the case in Russia. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, like Russia is not high church attending, but you know, people talk about how religious America is, and America's not high church attending either. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I don't know if there's some latent religiosity that was tied into it. Also, the book was somewhat popular in Russia. Oh, okay. Um, well, I, I was also wondering, I mean, the movie does, I think, hint at ideas of, of you know, freedom, right? And so the military restriction on the zone as a kind of, I mean, what seems to be the fear there is an individual with the right desire can change the system, right? And so the, right. um, and so the, uh, the military or the government in some whatever form it takes in this world um, is literally shooting at people who try to bust into the zone. And there's this real complicated way in which it's actually a really beautifully shot, um, almost caper scene where they follow a train through these blockades and um, and into an abandoned warehouse where they take a, a trolley train over um but But yeah but the military isn't what's interesting about that is that's completely true the military isn't in the zone it's not even that near the zone no it's outside on the border right yeah like like there and there are trains going back and forth to the area before the zone but not the zone itself right and so they but they get into where the train is going and that gives them access to the place where they can get into the zone right yeah and and then but when they're in the zone much of the field is littered with destroyed military equipment like so clearly in the history of this zone the military went in there and tried to do something about it and was wiped out by the zone right yeah and there's also bombed out cars and yeah so the zone fought it off yeah and so there does seem to be a political um subtext to this movie too that i wonder if was popular among you know late soviet union russians uh i i I mean, I don't know. I don't know enough about Russian history uh, to to know the the to have even a hazard a guess there. But uh, I, in addition to the to re- maybe a religious desire that this thing's speaking to, there does seem to be something about like individual um, agency and, uh, and and that sort of thing that uh, that it, it, I may be speaking to people, which made it so popular at the time there. Um, just a, yeah. just a question. Any listener out there who who knows what they're talking about more than me, by all means, tell me what I don't know. That's that's what I, that's what you're there for. So, um, uh, go ahead. But there's also some there's some other weird stuff in this. So, for example, the so the the child is reciting a poem. Yeah, 
at the end. And I looked up this um, um, this poem, and it's just kind of a love poem, but it's by a weird dude. So that's Fyodor um, Fyodor Tukchev, who uh, was a pan-Slavist. Um, uh, you know, a pan-Slavist Russian noble. Okay. Um, who was also a poet, and he was um, related to both Tolstoy and Ramsey Korsakov. Okay. Um, but uh, was um, a romantic and a, a, a Slavish nationalist. Um, he distrusted he, he um, um, he was interesting though because uh, unlike um, um, the uh, the other Panslavists, he didn't actually speak really negatively about the West or the Vatican or the Ottoman Empire. Okay. <laughs> like they 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 actually started seeing him as a Judas, but he was. He was um, he was not uh, an enemy. Is also liberal politically, um, and he like helped Tsar Alexander II like do the emancipation reforms. And I was actually just trying to figure out like what in the world this what? had, except for maybe the emancipation reforms and the love poem because it's the love theme, and then also this this politician is related to the the emancipation yeah. um, of the serfs in 1861. Um, that, that that's why it's mentioned here. Hmm. But that that actually puts it outside of a Soviet um, context, and also interestingly, this this dude was really important to Russian symbolist poets. Hmm. So um, I I was really like beating my head against the wall trying to figure out why this was here. I still don't really know. Um, well, well, and when she's reading that, it actually looks like a Bible she's reading, right? Uh, yeah, like, but I, it's not. But it's not. It's it not. Can't be. <laughs> no, I know. That's what. But I'm saying. But she's looking like she's holding a Bible. And earlier on, they do quote. Uh, there's a, a kind of a hallucinatory scene where they're laying, they're like resting on their way into the to the the house that the room is in. And there's something from like Revelation. I believe I looked it up. Eight. Um, there's something about kind of this apocalyptic imagery about the the first angel and the second angel and stuff. Um, and so there's uh, they do incorporate biblical verses like apocalyptic yeah. biblical verses and, and they so, do but there's no other evidence of religiosity in this culture i mean th- there are evidence that people like but may believe in god and they talk about faith a lot but there's no evidence of a church anywhere no no i mean there's <laughs> there's the only establishment you even see is the bar and it's not a bar in any proper sense it's yeah it, it's it, the bar and then like the military like barricade that's yeah. it it's a bar. I guess there's trains. Yeah, the, yeah. Their house, which is like a ruin itself. The bar is basically a room with one table standing in the middle of it, and uh, and that's basically it. This looks like a completely desolate landscape that they they live in. Um, and so the apocalyptic imagery. I, my curiosity. I mean, would anybody in the Soviet Union have even recognized that as a Bible verse? <laughs> that's how ignorant I am uh, about the religion in the Soviet Union. Well, uh, yeah. Well, okay. So this is really fascinating. Um, would Orthodox people even before the or- 
the Soviet Union recognize that as a Bible verse? Because the the Re- Revelations is not in the Orthodox lit- liturgical readings calendar. Mm, that's in. I think didn't we talk about this during Andrei Rublev? Yes. There, there was something. Yeah, about, it's yeah. not in the uh, the Orthodox do accept it, but they accepted it really late, yeah. like really really late. Um, I, I can't remember quite when they finally formally accepted it, but it it, it was it, it's and it, there there is also um, a reading, but whether like the Jews um, in Jewish culture, explicit speculation on the apocalypse is highly discouraged. Mm-hmm. Um, in in um, Eastern Orthodox Christianity, it's not that it's completely discouraged. I mean, like the, there was you know some very important. Um, uh, modern, even modern, even um, Orthodox thinkers like Father Seraphim Rose, who would talk about it, and there, there are um, like Orthodox Christian exegesis on Revelations, but um, or the Apocalypse according to John, as they generally refer to it. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, it's not. Um, it, it it is not like. The idea that that you even sometimes see with Catholics, and you definitely see with Protestants, that you would use it as a as a manual for eschatology directly, like that is that does not seem to be that common, and it does seem to be frowned upon, and except an, for very specific people in Orthodox Christianity. And in Andrei Rublev, that is like uh, a point of the movie. Actually, the yeah, yeah, the, the, I do remember there was some religious art and, and that had um, something to do with this conversation. Go back and listen to that episode; that was a lot of fun too. Yeah, I mean, so so that comes up in here as well. Although you do get the feeling that like this is a quasi post-apocalyptic landscape. Yeah. Yeah, it does feel definitely like that. And and so let me let me ask you this. So you do have this sense of the place is burned out like you would. Yeah. And also technology is kind of frozen because those aren't seventies cars and stuff you're seeing. No, that's a good point. Actually. They're like fifties um, cars. Like, like, and this was shot in seven in the seventies. So yeah. Um, what do you make of the water motif? Like water is really important in this movie as well in well, the zone. Um, yeah. No, water, like the Azerbaijani music, I think it's supposed to represent flux and instability. Okay. Like okay. reality in the water and in the and also in the sand dunes, like nothing stays the same. You couldn't you couldn't take a straight path because there's nothing oh. left to find it. That's interesting. Um, you know, I really do. Th- I did get a, a Lord of the Rings sense about this movie quite a lot. And I I'm, would be shocked if Peter Jackson didn't have this some of this movie in mind um, when uh, shooting the scene around the bogs, for example, in Lord oh, of the yeah. Rings, right? You know, because there's a very boggy scene. I think that's where the, are some of like the the dwarven um, underworld scenes kind of seem like the meat grinder scenes too. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so there, there does seem to be this kind of quest imagery. Um, and the, the thing with the bogs in Lord of the Rings was that it's sort of this unnavigatable uh, landscape that Gollum knows the, the trick to get through. Right. And so, and that's the trick, the trip into the room is that way as well. And and so having this kind of water landscape, that's, that's not like pure water. It's like gross water, if you will. And in fact, at the end, um, after we get them staring into the room for five minutes, um, unable to blow it up or go in the, the, the professor throws bomb parts into the room and we see a close up into the room. Now the camera is looking down into the water that he's thrown this stuff into. And it's been raining into the room in front of our camera at that whole time. And we see like a a discoloration float into the room that looks like blood to me. 
Um, right. Wh- yeah, and it's, what are your thoughts on that? I, 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 I noticed it. I couldn't tell you exactly what it meant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I can't even think of what it might suggest to me though. Like, um, like other than violent death, but we know that didn't happen. Right. And so there's something right. And there's these there's, fish like swimming around it at that time too, like, like carp or something like that, uh, are, are swimming around that little object as the, the, as that piece of the of the waterscape slowly turns kind of murky um, with what looks like blood to me. Um, and it's another sort of ominous little sign uh, that I don't know what to make of. <laughs> Listener, if you've seen this movie and uh, you have some ideas, that would be a uh, that'd be a fun contest. Like, what does it mean? Um, yeah. Um, you're working on something. What do you, what do you think there? I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to really make out what it could be. <laughs> um, I mean, it is called the meat grinder, and maybe it's supposed to be reminding you that it could grind you up. And I mean, there there are long lingering scenes, particularly in that cave, where you like see walls and you'll see like skeletal hands and stuff yeah. into like stone. Yeah. And but you have no like nothing happens with it. It's no, yeah, um, which makes it seem like these two men have been chosen by the room as worthy, right? And so when they get to the threshold of the room, their inability to act is all the more tragic. And I think that's part of what the stalker has his breakdown about is that these two men seemed like the room had accepted them and they could go in, right? But um, neither one of them had faith. And, and so, and he's just, it's almost like he's just as much lamenting a, an entire world that has completely lost its faith, and, including right. himself, right? For sure. And that, that seems to be largely what's going on here. But, um, you know, it's... It's fascinating in what you don't know. The theme of love in it and and love that seems frustrated but not lacking. I mean, the wife the, I, I I don't think people like interestingly, except for the the child again who's a girl, um, the zone everyone around it is men. She's um, the, yeah, the the to the wife and the daughter are the only female and the only females people. in there, and the, and and like the idea of the wife going in there well, is like it, almost horrifying to him. Like it completely breaks his tirade. At the beginning, when the writer has that girlfriend, that she seems to want to be go on the trip as well, and the stalker says, "Just get the heck out of here, right?" And then she drives away comically with the writer's hat still on top of the car, so his hat sort of drives away. Um, but and so he refuses to take a woman at the beginning. Uh, into the zone. And I do remember when they're in the room, like outside the threshold of the room, there's a couple of corpses that look like they're cuddling. And one of them seems to be a woman with red hair. Um, and, and so there does seem to be like an image of. There, there has love. been. Yeah. <laughs> and there has been women there, but they're not still there. Like, like that's, that's interesting to me too. I don't know really what to make of it. Um, well, and I think that's the point, though, right? I think that, uh, that uh, excuse me, uh, Tarkovsky wants it to be enigmatic for 
sort of moral and ethical purposes. If he wants it to be something that you can, you constantly stew over <laughs> and, 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 and wonder about. And so, um, yeah, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty happy to do that. I've, I've really, um, enjoyed talking about this movie with you, Derek. You're always such a great resource for me of uh, not only your own poetry, but, you know, uh, recommending awesome movies that I should watch and talk about with you as well. Um, um, I know that uh, the last show you were on, we were talking, I think the Grievance Studies show, uh, yeah. the um, the idea came up to read Middle of the Journey by Lionel Trilling uh, at some point, mm-hmm. maybe in the spring. And uh, and Todd Pedler of the Book of Nature podcast heard that and wants to be in on that too. So uh, we might, uh, we'll definitely have a, a... So we have the Middle of the Journey. And I think sometime in the next year, I challenge you to revisit uh, Alester McIntyre's After Virtue. And, and, because I seem to be one of the few Marxists obsessed with that book. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and Gilmore definitely wants in on that one. And so, yeah, yeah. Uh, Nathan Gilmore will be on that one with us. So, and I guess people are still asking for more of those um the keyword vocab- things the keyword things um yeah we'll um after we hang up we'll uh we'll maybe plan for one of those uh in the next few weeks here yeah. so something in january I, or something yeah i really enjoyed talking about this one i gotta admit as much as i love this movie it's hard to talk about without the visuals to like show people what i'm talking about you definitely go on just do a google image search uh, of this yeah. movie and any that's what i was doing when you were when you were like you're busy i was like i gotta find that image i gotta remember what it's supposed to be <laughs> any image you spot i mean it, it's you could hang it up and put it on your wall as a painting uh this 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 movie is just like one continuous painting that is just unfolds it before your eyes in really gorgeous ways and every um, every every bots cover of this movie I've ever seen has been awesome because it's just a still from the movie and like every still from the movie is perfect. Uh, yep. <laughs> it is. You could just pause it anywhere and it's it's beautiful. I, I I told you my screensaver for right now is is the writer with the makeshift mm-hmm. crown of thorns on his head and uh, yeah, it, it, it's an amazing image and and it's it's the, go ahead. Now the last I see this way about the last three Tarkovsky movies though the sacrifice. Um, um, the sacrifice. What's the one? The other one he did. It's also uh, in Sweden. It's also it is also post-apocalyptic. And this one, they're all gorgeous. I mean, his early movies are gorgeous, but his the not every shot. Yeah, is gorgeous. Like his 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 eight his uh, 80s movies. Like every single frame is about perfect. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately for us, he was dying by the time he was making them. He didn't die very. He did not die very old. Um, I mean, it's weird because we we think about it because his his film career began in his in his twenties and um, that would have been the the sixties and also like those early black and white movies seem so black and whitey. Yeah, um, <laughs> they do. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, and and um, Andrew Rublev is not actually the first one. I think the first one is. Um, Advent's Childhood, which is a, a devastating movie. Um, I'm also amazing. Um, but um, I actually can't think of a single bad Tarkovsky movie, but I don't know that I've seen all of them. Um, and some of them are not easy to get. Stalker was not easy to get for a long time. Before Criterion had the rights to it, it was like there was some other art house and the print wasn't very good. And, um, and I remember like, um, somebody had found the Moss film archives and put them all up. And that's where I first saw this movie, mm. even though like, I think there's still theatrical showings of this movie periodically, like, you know, art houses are, be, you know, put it up because 
if as beautiful as it is on a, on a nice TV, I mean, could you imagine seeing this with a good print in a theater? Oh, it would. Yeah, it would just be. I would think it would be overwhelming. I mean, these images are so gorgeous and, and, and they're not of gorgeous things, right? The, the actors are kind of ugly. The, um, the, and they're uglier than they are. Yes. <laughs> like actually like, like I, all those actors are fairly prominent Soviet actors. And, and even like the, the main, the, the wife who is not an unattractive woman is not made to be attractive in this movie. Right. And, um, and the landscapes aren't, aren't beautiful. Right. But the, it's, he takes that, ugliness and makes beauty beauty out of it and i think that that's maybe the subtext of this movie and that's where it links up nicely with andre rublev is that movie is about the the beauty of being an artist right and let me i forgot i wanted to read um i I found a someone had uh, excerpted the writer has this really amazing kind of soliloquy um while he's kind of coming to a realization about his desires, um, which is one reason he probably won't go into the room as we find out later. Um, he, he talks about his sort of motivation for writing. Um, and he says something like that. Uh, let me see. Um, what, what kind of writer am I? If I hate writing, it's constant torment for me, a painful, shameful occupation, sort of squeezing out of hemorrhoids. Okay. And so he talks about writing as this painful act of almost giving kind of quote unquote birth. Right. Um, and then he said, I used to think that someone would get better because of my books. No, nobody needs me. And two days after I die, they'll start gobbling up somebody else. I wanted to change them, but it is they who have changed me, making me in their own image, right? And so that's a moment that sounds very religious, right? Um, you talk about, um, and, and I do feel like there is something divine for Tarkovsky, uh, Tarkovsky about artists. We talked about this at length with uh, Andre Rublev, right? And And I think that, that's what makes the writer in this movie such an interesting character is that he has a touch of the divine because he is an artist. Right. Um, and, and he just is unwilling to sort of accept that. Uh, and, and so the stalker himself, I think is a stand in for the artist who's like trying to lead people into beauty. Right. And I, and I wonder if that's, that's Tarkovsky's own stand in is the stalker himself trying to lead us a place that we refuse to go. <laughs> and, and that's, that's the torture of an artist uh, mm-hmm. squeezing out hemorrhoids. Right. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think that there's a really uh, amazing uh, kind of reflection on what it is to be an artist in this movie. And then uh, I couldn't recommend it more. It's, it's a, it's a really terrific thing. Criterion has given us a, a really wonderful print of it. And, and Derek, uh, I really, really appreciate you coming on the show again to talk about it. Um, uh, yeah. So you'll, uh, if you have any, anybody listening has any uh, questions or anything to follow up with what we talked about, if you have any responses, by all means, go to the Facebook page, look us up there, like that page and, and comment away. You can also go to Twitter. There's a Facebook or a Twitter account for the show there. And of course, if you go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com, you'll find show notes where you can leave comments and all that kind of stuff too. I know Varn has a, uh, as a fan person that shows up uh, all the time on the comments. It's uh, <laughs> I would love to know who that person is. Someday we're going to unveil the identity. We should make that a contest. Who is Varn Lover 69? Um, I know there's all these uh, Christian people who found me on Facebook all of a sudden. I, um, I've noticed that, actually. Your Facebook feed has become uh, sanctified quite a bit. So, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, well, it's, it's a nice change to watch people arguing over, like, Protestant stuff that I don't know much about than uh, have them arguing over stuff that I actually follow. It's just like... It, um, I was I was on your Facebook wall and watching some 
something about something and such and such banning the Bible. And I was like, who spread these things? Where are these people from? Like, I've never heard this before. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, that was a meme going around evangelical Facebook is the California was banning the Bible and it had some, it was some like egregious misreading of this uh, anti, you know, gay conversion therapy law that they, they're banding about. But yeah, so yeah, I, oh, yeah, man. my Facebook page nowhere near as exciting as yours. So I will say that. So uh, anyway, so Derek, <laughs> uh, Derek Varn, thank you so much again. Um, always a pleasure to have you uh, look for Derek in the future. He's a, he's a frequent friend. So uh, uh, everybody listening. Thanks. Danny Anderson, thanking Derek Varn for joining me to talk about the great Tarkovsky film. Uh, not Solaris. What was the stalker? <laughs> Stalker. It's late. The other ass one. It's late. I got to get to bed. <laughs> oh.